You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Introducing our future king, Prince Charles. Yes. God as king is nothing like Prince Charles. That's the problem. Brilliant. Now, you'll know that this week, actually, Prince Charles has been in trouble. Um, in a private conversation, he commented uh, about Vladimir Putin being a bit like Hitler. Now, If our king, our future king, was all-powerful, I'm pretty sure he could get away with having a private conversation in another country on the other side of the world and it not getting him in trouble. Our problem with getting our head around God as king is our contemporary references are just so far away from how God is like king. So we need to turn to the Bible. We need to look at what God says about himself being king and ultimately about how Jesus is king. So our text for this morning is going to be Psalm 2, the whole of Psalm 2. It's quite a short psalm. It's about 12 or so verses. It's going to come up on the screen. If you have it, please turn to it and let's read it together. So Psalm 2, the reign of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what's going on here? This psalm was probably written around the time of King David. He may have even written it himself. There's two things going on. Often when you read the psalms, there's, there's two horizons. It's clear the language that we see in that psalm can't just refer to King David himself. It's, it's just too much. It overflows out of the psalm. No one human earthly ruler could ever possibly claim the claims that that psalm makes although almost certainly he is talking about King David, and maybe they even read it out on coronation days when his son Solomon and the line um, of kings below um, were coronated. However, we know that it's actually about an ultimate king. The, the, the one who thunders from Zion, declaring that he's the king, is not King David. It's someone who is greater. So we get this taste that there's someone even better coming in the future. And we know that the word anointed, so in that psalm it uses, um, I've set my anointed one. Um, The word anointed is actually the same word as Messiah. And we know who the Messiah is, it's Jesus. So this psalm is fully about Jesus. It's about declaring God, giving him all reign and authority over the earth. So this psalm, as we work through it, we will see three things. This is where we're going this morning. One, we have a king. That's verses four to nine. We have a true king who is above all the kings who is installed by God. We'll see that we actually hate the king. 
that it's in human nature to come against the king. That's in the first three verses. And then we serve the king. That's right at the end. The practical, showing us how we need the king. We serve and love the king. Kiss the king is the language which is in there. So first we look at, we have a king. So God says, look at all these kings all around. All of them. There's none like my son. That is an amazing statement. There is no king who's ever lived in the history of the world that is like my son Jesus. None. Yeah, think of the most um, powerful king. It might be um, like the Persian king, King Xerxes, whose empire stretched pretty much around the entire known world. Or thinking of like the Roman Empire, Caesar. He's like a king. The amount of empire that his kingdom stretched for pales into insignificance when we compare him against Jesus. Now, behind the scenes in, in our cultures, there's lots of stories which we'll be really familiar with. And they all go like this. There was a day when the earth was good. It was a blessed place and the king ruled. It was amazing. But then something took the king away and the earth went into darkness and were waiting for the king to return. Simple story but it's birthed a whole load of Hollywood movies right across. So we're going to play a little game. In a moment, a picture's going to come on. If you hold it just for a moment. We are, the prize is a healthy prize. We've got some uh, strawberry perfute yo-yo. We'll see. Um, I am after the name of the king in this famous story. First one to shout it out. Go. There we go. I'll have a go. We'll see. Uh, this might hit someone in the face. I apologize. Oh, there we go. Okay, it'll make its way back, I'm sure. Okay, this time we're going for mango. Next picture, please. No. King Arthur. There we go. Again, uh, those who aren't familiar with the, the legend, um, we're familiar with King Arthur, Camelot. It was an amazing place. He was a good king. But something takes King Arthur away, actually he dies. And on his um, tomb it, it reads, here lies Arthur, the once and future king. So the legend is Arthur's coming back. Okay, next one please. Come on, someone must know his name. Aragorn, there we go. Strawberry. So uh, those who are familiar with Lord of the Rings will know that the, the earth or Middle Earth, is in a time of darkness. And they're looking forward to the time of the return of the king. It's even the name of the film. Tolkien's making it really easy for you to get it. Aragorn. Okay, final one. This should be quite quick. Oh, I have no idea. So it's going over there. There we go. Right, Aslan. I mean, the difference between um, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis writes um, The Lion, the Witch, of the Wardrobe. Tolkien doesn't believe about making things too obvious, although he named his film, or not the film, the book, Return of the King. He, he writes in a way that it just spills out. Whereas C.S. Lewis deliberately writes so that you get the story. And it's very clear, isn't it, when you read the books that Aslan is Jesus. And in the films or the books, depending on what you've seen or read, you'll know that the, the earth is in a time of winter. There's snow on the ground. And then you get this rumor. The lion is roaring again. He's coming back. He's coming to claim back the earth. 
Why do these stories keep coming around in the films and the books of our culture? It's because they all point to an ultimate truth. We know that behind the scenes, that the earth is in a place that it hasn't fully realized the return and the rule and the reign of Jesus. We've had a taste of it, and we'll come on to how that works out in terms of when Jesus came the first time. But we're looking forward to him coming again. And that's why these stories, they grab us. They're through all our cultures, because it's just at a deeper level. So part of our problem is the historical kings, in the, uh, like the real kings, not the legends, have been dreadful, to be honest. And that's because humankind are sinful. And there's no one man or one woman who could rule a nation and be truly good. So what have we done? Well, we've moved towards democracy. We've said no one person can actually hold rule and reign over a nation. We need to vote together. And that government gets changed maybe every two, four years, depending on which part of the world. And that's been our solution. What I'd suggest is that's a temporary solution. That's not God's ultimate plan for how the, uh, the world will work in terms of um, rule and reign. We know Jesus is going to rule and reign. So, that said, we're kind of fascinated with royalty as well. Royal weddings, royal babies. We're, there's something about us that's drawn to, to royalty. I was in um, Amsterdam about a month ago, and they had their King's Day. And the entire nation dress up in orange, and they go on the street, and they party, and they celebrate the fact that they've got a king. Now, that king doesn't really have any power, but they love the fact that they've got a king. And I guess what the jubilee for us, the Diamond Jubilee, it was a similar event. We're excited about the queen and royalty, but ultimately, it's a very dim reflection of what King Jesus is like. Okay, James Massey, this is for you. Where are you? Work this one in, especially for you. If you put the next slide up. Game of Thrones. I know you're a big fan. Say that again. What time? I, I, no, we're, not, we're going just across the theme. So when you watch Game of Thrones, okay, this I'm going to help you here. What is the overriding message of Game of Thrones? I would suggest that it's good becomes bad and bad becomes good. And no one can truly hold the throne. Everyone is imperfect in some way. Those of you who've seen the series will know that kings come and they go, queens come and they go, and there's this war, and it's, it's just no one can truly hold the throne. Well, you know what? That's truth. We believe that. We believe that no human, apart from Jesus, can hold the throne. And that's the message of the Game of Thrones, so contemporary restaurants. We were built to serve the true king. Again, another contemporary reference. Steve, where are you? Superheroes. Why are superheroes, why are we drawn to stories about superheroes? It's because we desire to serve the king and we make our own kings. We look for those who are on another level that we can crown and in some way worship and look to and hope that they can save us in some way. Can they save the city from the supervillain? That's the message of you know, very broadly speaking, of superheroes. And if it's not superheroes, it's billionaires. And we look at them and we crown them and go, look, aren't they amazing? Or it's celebrities that sing or do sports or we somehow find a king to worship within our culture. And it's because we've been designed that way, we've been built that way. So, looking back at the Bible, 
a bit distracted the fact that Game of Thrones is still on the screen, but we've got to get to the Bible verse quickly so we can move on. So um, the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, you get this message, the king is coming. The prophet spoke about the king. It, it just thunders out. So let's look at one of those um, uh, uh, prophets, Isaiah, verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 6 to 7. For us, for unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. One day, there will be one who is born that will rule the whole earth. And that's what the the Jews were living with right through the Old Testament. They were looking forward to the day, the king is coming, the king is coming. And when the Romans were over them, they were looking for the king to come and release them from that slavery and give them freedom. That's, that's what they were desiring. So the Bible says there is a king above all kings. There is one behind all of those legends that we know. There is a coming king, and even the greatest kings who have ever lived are just a dim reflection of him. However, if you reject the true king, you will find a king somewhere to worship because that's how we've been built Okay, another um, contemporary reference. Who knows who this guy is? Uh, Whether you voted for him or not voted for him this week. What is going on in our country that has taken pretty much a political outsider and given him the prominence over this last week? I would suggest at a deeper level there is a desire to find a saviour for a situation that some people perceive to be in this country. They're looking for a king. And the thought is, if only we can get him the prominence or the power, he can sort this problem out. And so we've crowned him. Now, he's obviously not going to be the king of England. Um, he might not even be in government. But um, even at that level, we've given him a crown. And we've, we've um, in a way, worshipping him. We will all find a king in some way. We search for that white knight. We search for the saviour. We've got to. It's in our blood. But, it's a memory test, but if we choose the wrong one, it's poison to our soul. Who has been watching Bear Grylls, The Island? Yeah, a few people, okay. Uh, Those who are unfamiliar with it, um, Bear Grylls has taken um, 13 men and abandoned them on an island in a quest to see, has modern man still got the skills to be able to survive? Now, it's only a month. Bell Grylls actually isn't even on the island. You'll see if you watch the show, he kind of appears. He's probably in a five-star hotel somewhere else. Comments on it. Um, one of the biggest challenges the men have faced is very simply food. Where are we going to get our food from? How are we going to find our food? And um, in one of his pieces to camera, Bell Grylls appears and he's walking along the island and he's explaining how the more hungry you get, the more time you go without food, the worse the decisions you make are more likely to be as your energy drops, as you, um, the hunger inside just builds. And he pulls out what looks like a really tasty, juicy fruit. He says, this is called the death apple. And in fact, in one stew, this has the potential to kill every single man on this island, just this tiny little apple. And what is his point? Well, the point is, 
we will find something to gobble. That's, that's who we are. We will find something to consume if we're hungry. And ultimately, if we don't find the right thing, we'll consume the death apple. And it will poison us. So, we will gobble. <laughs> but God says, I've given my son good, good fruit, good food. And I've set him over the whole earth. And the message of Christianity is, yes, there is one who can be king and only one, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Lord of Lords, King Jesus. We have a king. However, we also hate the king. What do you mean by that? Well, the kings referred to in the psalm are us. We all want to be king. We all want to be king of our own lives. And when one comes along who cries, you are mine, we don't like that. We really don't like that. The natural heart of every human being hates the king claiming ownership of us. Why, why are the kings upset in, in the psalm? It's because the king comes along and puts a yoke on them. In other words, you know, a yoke is something we put on, something we own, like an ox or a horse. Um, and that's what God's doing in this psalm. He's putting a yoke on the kings. Now, we'll come on to how the yoke actually, paradoxically, leads to freedom a little later on. Later on. But that's why the kings are really not happy. Uh, Abraham Kuyper, who's a 20th century Dutch um, theologian, um, he puts it this way. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And when Jesus does that within us, we go, I want to keep this bit for myself. And that's human nature. Another uh, famous theologian, George MacDonald, was from the 19th century Scottish. He actually inspired a lot of the writing of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Um, he puts it this way. For the one principle of hell is, I am my own. And I am my own king and my own subject. That cry of, I am my own, is the thing that they'll be shouting in hell. It's the thing that rallies us against God. I'm not yours, I am mine, I am my own. Take the yoke off me, I don't want it. I'm the captain of my own soul, I'm the master of my own life. You have no right to tell me how to live my life. That's human nature, that's what got us into trouble in the garden, that's what gets us into trouble right now, it affects your relationships, it affects your, your job, it affects every part of your life. Ultimately, we love to be in control of our own lives. And we hate the idea of a king. We hate the idea of someone who has rights over us. We hate the idea of a king who puts a yoke on us. Um, within uh, contemporary culture, probably one of the most vocal voices on hatred against God and religion is this man here. Anyone know who he is? Richard Dawkins. Okay, this is a quote from Richard Dawkins. But you didn't think you'd hear that today. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. With vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynic, homophobic, racist, infidential, genocidal, uh, pestilential... There's some big words here. Capriciously, (laughs) mavillian, bully, bully. There we go. Okay. 
Um, I think it's clear that Richard Dawkins hates God. Now, he would say, well, I, I hate the God that is portrayed in the Old Testament, in the Bible. I don't actually believe in God. If he was here today, we could spend time, because this is a character attack on God, we could spend time showing the true character of God. And I'm convinced that if we examined the character of God, he would stand up. Just a few weeks ago, when Pete um, preached on the holiness of God, we know that the character of God stands above these accusations. However, he'd probably throw back, what's the point in studying someone who doesn't exist? He'd throw back, what's the point in hating someone that doesn't exist? So, what Dawkins represents is a society that ultimately says, I hate the idea of a God who says, I'm in control of you, I own the whole world, and you are mine. That's the flavor of the hatred that comes out in those words. Now, he might be far down the extreme, but we're all somewhere. We're all somewhere on that extreme. At some point in our lives, we, we hate God and we rebel against God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century American preacher, wrote a book, Man's Natu- uh, Men, Naturally God's Enemy. And it's based on Romans 8, verse 7, which is this one here. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Why did we kill Jesus? Get this yoke off me. I am my own. I hate the king. Now, you might be thinking I'm stretching the truth a little bit, that actually, in society, people uh, are open to the idea of the existence of God, that that's not actually too big a deal. Well, okay, I I admit that, broadly in society, uh, the admission of an existence of God is is a normal thing. I don't think that would be too, too weird for someone to say, yeah, I believe in a God. However, a God who claims the whole earth as their own and says every single part of your life needs to come under the rule and reign of my authority. Society hates that God. That's a very different God to what they they might warm to. See, Jesus turns up um, in the New Testament, Luke 14, 26, and says statements like this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What's Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying that your love for me and all your other relationships, they'll look like hatred compared to the level of love that you need to have for me. That's how much we need to love Jesus. That's how much he needs to be supreme in our life. He wants to be number one. He must have total control of every area of our lives. Now, if you're sitting there squirming a little bit at this point, thinking, wow, Okay, Jesus wants control of every area of my life. That's a normal reaction. It's completely normal. doesn't mean that you're um, any different to anyone else here. We all like to keep control of some area. For some of us, we like to keep control of our credit card. For others, it's our sex life. For others, it's our job, where we live, who we hang out with, what we do for holidays, what we do with our time. But there's always some area that we like to put our own crown on and say, You know what, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you lived a perfect life. You died on the cross and you rose again. And you're the king. You can have all of it. But this bit, this is the bit I'm keeping. It's only fair. I just want this little bit. Well, that is not the king that is presented in the Bible. Jesus wants it all. 
is king over all. So this is not just a message for the Richard Dawkins of this world who are outside of the church. It's also a message for us. Um, you might be sitting there thinking, you know, well, in terms of my morality, I'm a pretty good person. Um, I'm not like Richard Dawkins. I've, I've got, um, yeah, I'll, I'll do all right. If Jesus came into the room and he decided who was going to go with him, I think I'd make the cut. What are you doing there? You're using morality to escape Jesus. You're finding your own saviour rather than embracing Jesus. You know what? If you don't get to the point of understanding, actually, I do hate the king, then you're not probably a Christian. If you think that you've just accepted some of the truth of who Jesus is, but you haven't come to that point, saying, you know what? I'm so far away from being able to be in the throne room of the king that the only way I can get in there is through Jesus. If you find any other little passageway that you're trying to sneak through, that's not the gospel. We all need to come to a place to go, you know, I do have a problem with the king. Um, so this brings us to submitting to the king in all areas of our life. Um, instead, we want to rule over our own lives. Um, we might go to church on a Sunday, midweek group, but deep down, there's the potential for us to say, Jesus, you know, I don't want you to put your finger on that part of my life. You can have the other bits, but that bit, that's not up. And that leaves us to a life of hypocrisy, living a double life. And we can think Jesus is there only to serve our own ambitions, our own desires, rather than us to serve him. Which brings us to we serve the king. But before we go on, I just want to take a moment, because that you know, there might be, Areas of your life that immediately God's just brought to mind. And he's saying, I want that bit. I know you gave me 99%, but I want that bit. So I'm just going to pray for us. Jesus, we, we know you are the king. We know what it costs you to become the king. And we love you. And we want to serve you. And we're really sorry that in our nature, we hate that. We're really sorry that there may be parts of our lives that we've held back from you. That even though we've, we've embraced you and declared you that you're king of our lives, we want to give you every single area. So right now, we invite you, come into our lives and change that bit. We want to be your servants. We want to serve you. We want to come under your rule and reign. In your name, amen. Okay, we serve the king, final point. So verses 10 to 12 show us that if you see um, that we really have a king and we understand that on a fundamental level we hate the king, that ultimately it leads us to embrace, serve, and kiss the king. And being in the king's blessing is a wonderful thing. Coming under Jesus' rule and reign blesses all parts of our lives. There's no refuge from the king. There's only one king. We need the king. We have to be persuaded of that. We have to take the yoke and put it on. It's not that God forces it on us. It's that we have to put it on ourselves. And through serving the king, paradoxically, this is the kingdom, we find freedom. By becoming a slave, we become free. It's a strange, strange, strange kingdom, isn't it? We're all trying to get back to Camelot. We all yearn for that day where the king is ruling again. 
But how does that work? How do we serve the king? Well, we first need to understand a little bit more about the kingdom. I need um, three volunteers. I'm not going to tell you what it's for either. So you just come up. Come on. Three. Oh, okay, Manuel's up. Julie. Right, and one more. Come on, Rob. Yeah, right. Okay. These three are now going to represent Jesus in three points in the timeline of the history of the world. Rob, you are the creator Jesus. So you need to come down here. So Rob represents Jesus speaking the whole world into being. It's good. The garden is good. It's a good time. Look, createful. There we go. (laughs) So Julie represents um, Jesus coming as a man, born, lived a perfect life, died on a cross and rose again. If you could kind of look Jesus like that would help. There we go. And Emmanuel down here. This, this is probably my favorite Jesus. This Jesus has got tattoos on his thighs. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's riding a big horse. And he's the warrior king Jesus that's portrayed in Revelation at the end of time. That's coming back. And at that point, you can't deny that he's the king. So if you can kind of look like that. There we go. So this is kind of the timeline of the kingdom. Now, where is the kingdom? That's our question. Well, we know down here... It was very easy to see the rule and reign of Jesus because as Jesus spoke creation into being and in the garden, it was clear he was the king. But then we sinned and things changed. And between Rob and Julie here, we've got the Old Testament. We've got the period of time where Satan actually reigned. The earth was his and it was very little that the people of God could really do about that. They hadn't been empowered. Jesus hadn't come. However, Julie arrives, well, Jesus, but we'll go with it. Lives a perfect life, dives on a cross, rose again, changed. The, the serpent who's thriving and living in between these two, the head is crushed at this moment. However, although things have changed, it also hasn't changed. That's the paradox of the kingdom. It's like a, um, it's, it's new, it's a new season. But we've still got death, and we've still got the poor, and we've still got sickness, and we've still got all of the things of the world, war and pestilence, and all of the things which um, we're aware of. However, Jesus has come, and he's reigning. I can't say what's going on. Well, we need to understand what's happening down this end of the timeline. You see, when Emmanuel returns, Jesus, remember that, <laughs> on your horse, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. The whole earth is going to be made new. And there's no more sickness. There's no more pain. There's no more death. There's no more poor. It's a great, glorious time. It's what all the legends point to that we looked at. This is the thing that we're waiting for. So how do we serve the king? Well, the king is reigning here. This is where we are right now. We get to serve the king. And when we bring things under the rule and reign of Christ, now we're bringing the kingdom. When someone becomes a Christian, and says, you know what, Jesus, I'm giving my life to you. I'm bringing things under your rule and reign. That's where the kingdom is. When we um, feed the poor, like at food bank, and we say, you know, the kingdom, there's no poor. That's not a good, there's no hungry. So as Christians, we're going to bring the rule and reign of Christ here. We're going to feed the poor. We're going to feed the hungry. That's the kingdom. When we pray for the sick, and we see sick healed, we're saying, you know, the future kingdom doesn't have sick, 
We're going to bring that, and we're going to bring it under the rule and reign of Jesus, and that's where the kingdom is. And that's the role we get to play. Isn't that an incredible thing? That we get to look forward to that, but we get to bring it now. Thanks, guys. You can sit down. So... Um, again, an Abram Kuiper um, quote, the curse should no longer rest upon the world itself, but upon that which sinful in it. And against the monastic flight from the world, the duty is now emphasized of serving God in the world in every position of life. In other words, monastic means to flee, to separate, to build your own little Christian kingdom somewhere and enjoy God. That's not what we're called to. We're called to serve God in every position of your life. So your job and the people that you live next to, the people that you meet every day, you're to bring the kingdom into those situations and bring the future kingdom now. So just to finish, I'd like to read um, three uh, quotes about Jesus. And I want you to see if you can guess who wrote them. This is the first one. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fall or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Yeah, okay. A little bit harder one. See how you get on. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at his hour, millions of men would die for him. Say that again. Anyone want to have a guess? You're in the right area. It was actually Napoleon Bonaparte, the French military leader. Um, so the reason we've spent four weeks looking at the character of God is we want you to raise your eyes and see how amazing and wonderful and life-changing God is. That's why we've spent time looking at how God is holy. We looked at how God is a shepherd, and we've looked at how God is a king, and I've forgotten the second week. Can anyone remember? Really? You're all here. Eternal, the eternal God. So we've looked at these characteristics of who God is. <laughs> um, we're going to finish. Um, we're going to finish by uh, watching a short video. Um, you, you've probably seen it before. I think we've even played it in Redeemer before. But what we want to do is lift your eyes to see who Jesus really is, and then Rich is going to come and um, lead us in a response, which will include communion.
The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be at all sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Amen. That's our king.